This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, September 15th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. State governments are far ahead of the feds when it comes to reconciling the desire to take crime seriously while also asserting basic fiscal responsibility. Sal Nuzzo, vice president of policy at Florida's James Madison Institute, talked with me about how states can have both savings and a coherent criminal justice system. Why has criminal justice reform ceased to be a federal issue? It's not that criminal justice reform has ceased to be a federal issue. It is that the majority of the headway being made on reforming policies has been done at the state level, and it's where the most impact is being met. And unfortunately, right now, the current administration is not as palatable to um, reform of policies at the federal level. And so um, states are continuing to pick up the slack. So um, how does one, on one side, be a Republican who cares about fiscal responsibility at the state level and then uh, support or uh, not actively oppose a president and an attorney general who actually want to move in the opposite direction with respect to crime and punishment? Well, I think the first part of that is um, as a Republican or conservative, we care about both public safety and fiscal responsibility. And what states have done over the last 10 to 12 years has proven that um, reforming the policies in place at the state levels accomplishes both. So what we're finding is that you can reform policies uh, by way of how you treat uh, folks when they're coming into contact with the criminal justice system, as well as when they're coming out, and you can positively impact both public safety and save lots of money at the state level. Give some uh, examples of where the savings are big. Sure. Well, if you look at the state of Florida, which is where I come from, uh, we have roughly 100,000 individuals incarcerated in the state. And so uh, we have one of the highest incarceration rates in the, in the country. It's 20% higher than the national average. Uh, Florida spends roughly two-point-something billion dollars each year on its Department of Corrections. So just looking at something as, um, as easy as compassionate release programs or how we treat addicts in the system uh, when half of your inmates, or more than half, are nonviolent offenders, one of the things you know is that for the vast majority of them, they're going to get out. And so what we see is that if you can get to them while they're inside and begin the process of uh, not just confining them, providing programmatically things that are going to be uh, rehabilitative in nature, uh, vocational training, and then on the reentry side, look at things like occupational licensing and and removing barriers to them becoming productive citizens, uh, you can see uh, savings in in the tens of millions of dollars per year. What is the evidence for occupational licensing as a uh, being related to recidivism? Occupational licensing is inherently related to uh, post-release treatment of uh, felons. What we have found is that for those that are serving sentences in the 8 to 12-year range, 
um, they are learning vocations when they are inside. So they're, and what are they learning? They're learning to be barbers. They're learning to be electricians. They're learning valuable trades when they are incarcerated that can turn them into productive citizens when they're released. Occupational licensing serves as a brick wall that they have to climb over in order to um, become productive members of society. So oftentimes the licensing fees, the training, the certification hours are all impediments to them being able to, um, to get employment, get gainful employment, and you know, in the end not be on the safety net or uh, reoffend in the end. So what are the, what are the big metrics to look for in terms of people not being sent back to prison? Right now, uh, most states look at reoffending rates on a uh, on a three year cycle. Uh, quite honestly, that seems a bit short, and so we would love to see more states begin to look at it at a five or seven year cycle. Uh, but that's the main metric that's being used uh, by most states, uh, and. The other interesting thing, and this has been kind of talked about over the years and how much of an, uh, of an impact it actually has on uh, inmate populations, is fourth grade reading scores. Uh, many states have looked at their fourth grade reading scores at, on the NAEP evaluation as a predictive measure of, uh, anecdotally at least, what their future needs are going to be in the prison population down the road. Well, that is, that's striking that that is, that is, is it a strong predictor? Um, is it a strong predictor? Many claim that it is. However, whether or not it's direct causal relationship can be actually, you know, kind of married is a question that social sciences so, social scientists have batted back and forth over the last you know ten to fifteen years. So if if I'm uh, your average run of the mill median guy who is uh, a Republican member of the House or Senate in my state, and we have prisons that are overcrowded uh, in some some sta- many states, county jails are overcrowded with people who would otherwise be in the, the state prison population. Um, how do I make that pitch to uh, my constituents that going soft on crime, to use the opponent's term, is going to be a big savings? Well, one with, of the- Without sacrificing public safety. And that's really the key is marrying the savings with the correlated uh, improvement in public safety. Both can be accomplished. And the key to that is looking at the experience of Texas. Texas is a deeply red state, very much a conservative uh, kind of uh, benchmark for a lot of states that have looked at them for how to model conservative or libertarian policies. And Texas, about 12 years ago, started an experiment when they realized that the status quo was going to cost them several billion dollars more in incarceration expenditures than they were already spending. So little by little, they began to experiment with reforms and saw massive reductions, not just in the inmate population and the correlated spending uh, levels, but also 
increases in public safety, reductions in recidivism, and um, and and kind of lower crime rates. And so, as the reform began to take hold, the state began to become more aggressive in what they would pursue, and they continue to make substantive reforms. It's done at the marginal level, uh, and in each case, they're able to look at the reform down the road, three, five, seven years out, and longitudinally evaluate the causal impacts and be able to determine that these reforms are both saving money and uh, improving public safety. And the fact that Texas can do it in such a deeply red state should be a, uh, a kind of a consideration for other conservative or libertarian states that are interested in looking at these policies as both a fiscal uh, as both a fiscal solution and a public safety solution. Now, a lot of other a lot of deep red states have made uh, have reduced some sentencing for. Uh, in particular, some drug crimes. But there are laws on the books that prohibit all sorts of things that are just pointless, or they create opportunities for uh, and, and being enmeshed in the criminal justice system. Do uh, state lawmakers look directly at sort of pointlessly punitive laws to say, hey, we need to think about this as a, uh, an expense issue and that maybe we need to get rid of these laws on the books, even if we don't like this particular behavior, to say we, we, this is just money we don't need to be spending to deal with these people. Absolutely. And what you find is uh, in the area of what we would call overcriminalization, you have uh, in some cases thousands of these ridiculous laws, and some of them become comical. And so uh, it's illegal to walk your dog on the left side of the street or uh, on a Sunday. And so you've got, you know, thousands of these archaic laws on the books that a number of states are beginning to look at what we just call straight up repealer bills. And repealers just take them off the books, get them out of the, the codes, and begin to restore some sanity to the system. And in addition to that, there's uh, a, a very much an effort affront in many states to address specific drug crimes and how we treat addicts versus how we look at how we wish to treat drug traffickers. And that's the next kind of frontier in reforming sentencing uh, based on a lot of science, based on a lot of research. And the experiences of states that have had laws on the books that were uh, very much counterproductive in the war on drugs. And, and that's because the difference between a drug user and a drug trafficker is often just not at all clear. Absolutely. And, and the laws on the books in many states had such low thresholds to trigger a trafficking charge that uh, you could have a, a person who – in Florida, at least, uh, up until a couple of years ago, a person who uh, possessed, I believe it was seven pills of hydrocodone or oxycodone, would trigger a drug trafficking charge, which carried a mandatory minimum with it. So uh, a person who becomes an addict who has seven pills is not a drug trafficker. 
And what we have anecdotally uncovered are cases where these individuals are then often um, utilized by law enforcement to try and go after folks up the chain, and the results are, are scary in terms of how individuals are treated uh, in the system by law enforcement on occasion, and public safety is not served in that capacity. Sal Nuzzo is vice president of policy at the James Madison Institute. We spoke at the State Policy Network annual meeting in San Antonio. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.